Lord, we, again, are so grateful for this morning in that we get to come and fellowship with other like-minded saints, that we can come and encourage one another, admonish one another if needed, point people to Christ, Christ alone, and depend on his strength to do so. Uh, I pray that you bless our time this morning. As always, remove any distractions uh, that are in our minds and hearts so we can focus on your word and the lessons that it has for us today. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. So continuing in our series, Glor The Glory of God in the Local Church, and talking about unity, this morning's a, an easier topic than the last three weeks. It's on encouragement. Um, hopefully you guys are blessed by it and are encouraged. So encouragement is a good thing. As Christians, we know it's something that we're called to do, but it's also something that, we, uh, that can be f vague. It's encourage is encouragement just another word for being nice? As we open, I want to ask you all, what are some of the goals of true encouragement according to scripture? And why should we encourage one another? So listen to what Paul's goal for encouragement was from First Colossians 1. It says, him, which is Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We are called to the same goal as believers today, presenting others mature to Christ. We also read in Hebrews, it says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more you see the day drawing near. That's from Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. That same sentiment is echoed in our church covenant as we went over last week. It says, we will live in peace, affectionately watching over one another by admonishing the idol, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, and being patient with all. So here's a definition of encouragement. Caring for someone else, usually including speaking biblical truth to them, with the goal of that person's growth and godliness. So again, it's caring for someone else, which usually includes speaking biblical truth to them with the goal of that person's growth and godliness, okay? I say usually because you might be able to encourage someone without words as well, and that could be bringing them a meal. But biblically speaking, encouraging generally has some content to it, and that content should come from God's word. So what a massive responsibility. Encouragement for the purpose of holiness. And together, we are in a life and death struggle with the world, with our flesh, and with the devil. And our calling is to help each other cross the finish line by the grace of God. And God is the one who ultimately preserves us. And yet, he uses means to do that. And one of those means is the body of Christ, the church. Part of fulfilling that calling includes confronting explicit sin, and we talked about that last week with church discipline. But the Christian life involves much more than that. It involves thousands of daily decisions that form the storyline of our lives. We need encouragement if that story is going to be one of joyful trust in Christ until we die. 
And therefore, encouragement is crucial for our unity as a church. And we encourage one another in Christ. That ensures that we're united around Christ and not other things. When our unity is suffering, we need to be well-skilled in the art of encouragement so we can point one another to what really matters and help one another work past the seeds of division. Let me lay out a few brief outlines for our time together this morning, and we'll start by examining what makes encouragement tough to do well. And then we'll look at the type of relationships that are required to make this happen. And finally, some practical guidelines for how we can speak gospel-rich encouragement into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? So, Roman numeral number two, the challenge of encouragement. So, first, what makes this difficult? Two things we must be aware of when we try to encourage others. The first and foremost is our struggle is one of the heart. It involves the core desires that motivate our decisions and actions every day. And as we read from the prophet Jeremiah, do you remember what he says? The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The evil desires of the heart are what James points to, both as the cause of temptation and conflict. So James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And James 4.1 says, what, quarrel, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So when we find that our brothers and sisters in this church are making decisions that don't align with their identity in Christ, we know that the problem isn't primarily external, but the working out of sinful de desires in their own hearts. This is important important because so often when we're in relationships with other Christians and we see things in their lives that are dishonoring to God, our goal is often to get them to behave in a different way. If only uh, he wouldn't spend so much time around those people, we might say. If only she would spend her money differently. If only he would switch to a job that gave him more time with his family. So those are all behavioral things. But as we know all too well, behavior isn't the root of the problem. And here's a few implications of this. So the first is only God can change the heart. We are his instruments. And so as we get involved in others' lives, we must remember that prayer is our best tool, that guilt and coercion can't correct deep heart issues. And that our desperation for God to act increases the glory he is due. There can be good, appropriate times to help others work for behavior change, holding someone accountable for habitual sin, for example. But better behavior isn't our ultimate goal. Ultimately, we care about the matters of the heart. Another implication is when we encourage others, we must remember that our hearts are prone to wander as well. It's no incident that immediately after Paul exhorts us to restore those caught in sin in Galatians 6, he warns us against our own pride and self-reliance. Our, our hearts are darker and capable of more evil than we can realize. Right? It's but by grace there go I. 
We are no different from the person that we're trying to help or minister to. It's but by grace alone that you're not in the same position, correct? And last, the importance of the heart reminds us that our goal isn't to help others feel happy and fulfilled. That is not our goal. There are many ways to achieve this, and tragically, it never gets to our heart issues if we're just trying to help them feel better. Our goal for encouraging others is that they would be transformed in their desires to seek Christ above all else. That in the end is what leads to true and lasting joy. So the first challenge we face as we struggle to encourage our brothers and sisters is the deceitfulness of the heart, their heart and our own, correct? Secondly, letter B, hollow and deceptive philosophies. The second enemy is worldly thinking. What I have in mind here is Paul's words in Colossians 2.8. It says, to see it to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. To use this terminology, we are all philosophers. We all, at some time, are creating philosophies of meaning in our lives. So what matters? Why do things happen? What's worth living for? And though we usually know what the right answers are to those questions, we are easily deceived by philosophies that are human and worldly rather than based on truth and God's word. And the people that we're trying to encourage in one ear have the world shouting in the, with a megaphone in the other ear, and we're the same way. We're in the same situation. Our guiding philosophy should rest on the truth of the gospel and the gospel alone. But even as Christians, our lives are often inconsistent with truth. In their book, How, to Change, How People Change, uh, Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp call this a, a gospel gap. A gap between what we know is true and in, it, then what the gospel tells us how to live. Okay, so I'm going to ask you some questions on that later. So get ready. On the gospel gap. And the people that we're trying to encourage in one ear, right, who they have a megaphone in their other. Um, here we go, a gap. So, and they observe that such gaps don't stay empty. So those gospel gaps, they get filled with something. We and others in our church are often operating with a mix of gospel truth and other philosophies that, though they sound biblical, have at their core the values of the world. The authors identify seven of these substitute philosophies, and I'm going to walk through them. And as I do, I want us to think where we might recognize these as being true in our own hearts first. We always want to do a self-examination and look in our own hearts as we go through these instead of thinking of someone who go, oh, I know that they're doing this, right? There are those, but we want to, we want to check our own hearts first. So, number one, the first is formalism. This defines those who participate in regular meetings and ministries in the church, and so they feel that their life is under control. They may always be in church, but it has little impact on their heart and how they live their life. They're just going through the motions. They may become judgmental and impatient with those who don't go through the same motions as they do. True Christianity, however, 
is being in the right place and going through the right motions. Secondly, is a formalism's close cousin. And we all know this one, it's legalism. This defines those who live by rules, and usually rules that they create for themselves, and rules they create for others or project on others. They feel okay if they can keep their own rules, and they become arrogant and full of bitterness when others can't meet the standards they set for them. And there's no joy in their life because there is no grace to be celebrated. Next is mysticism. Number three, this defines those who have an incessant pursuit of an emotional experience with God. They live for the moment and the moments when they feel close to him. But if they have no emotional high at that point, they assume God doesn't love them or he's not real. Right? That's when we have to trust the truth of scripture. And that's why feelings and emotions don't, should not dictate what we think. Truth should. Fourthly, activism. It defines those who get excited about Christianity mainly as a way to fix the broken world. They base their relationship with God on how much they've done, uh, whether it's to alleviate poverty or their activism on abortion. Uh, you can fill in the blank. But their heart is far from them because it's just an activism that they're going for. Fifthly, there's biblicism. This defines those who reduce the gospel to a mastery of biblical knowledge and theology. They know a lot. They know the Bible inside and out, but they don't let it master them. And so they are impatient with those with lesser knowledge, right? There's pride. Uh, six is the therapeutic gospel. This defines those who may talk a lot about how Christ is the only way that healing and help can come from those who are hurting. Yet, without realizing it, they've made Christ into a therapist rather than a savior. That's a dangerous spot. They view the sin of people against each other as a greater problem than their own sin against God. And they treat Christianity simply as a way to have a happy life. And finally, number seven, what you might call socialism. This defines those who seek deep fellowship and friendship at church that become idols the body of Christ replacing Christ himself. And the gospel is reduced to a, a, a networking of fulfilling Christian relationships, right? We come here to hang out with our friends and to grow our social network. So seven anti-gospel philosophies, all of them based on half-truths that we, or we are all prone to believe, which is exactly why we need encouragement. Encouragement serves to correct faulty philosophies of what Christianity is all about. Now, when I was young, my mom put me through years of piano lessons as a kid. And what the teacher often stops you when you're doing something wrong, like you have improper hand posture, right, up here. And they would correct you to do correctly. So when we give biblical encouragement, we act sort of like a teacher who gently and regularly helps their students recognize and eliminate bad theological habits that have crept in. 
she is not only correcting poor posture, but models the right way to do it as well. Like that teacher, we must expose false ways of teach or thinking and help one another delight in the truth of Scripture. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So that's the challenge, to battle the desires of the heart. Recognizing that we swim in a sea of worldly philosophies that challenge fundamental Christian truths about who we are. If that's what we're up against, next we should think about the context for change, by which I mean the kinds of relationships that promote encouragement towards holiness. So Roman numeral three, context for change. In James 5.16, it says to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There are two things that we need in a church to have a healthy culture of encouragement, a willingness to reveal struggles and a willingness to listen to, and help others when they reveal, reveal their struggles. Nothing I say in this class will be of any use to you if you're not willing to be vulnerable and reveal your struggles to others. And if you're not close enough to people to know when they need help. Right? It's the ministry of encouragement and getting to know the body. A few thoughts on what we can do to cultivate this type of church context on sharing our struggles. Let me encourage us to take the opportunity when appropriate to embrace it, what we call a ministry of dependency. There's nothing godly about stumbling through alone on your own struggles because you are too proud to let others help you. Give others the opportunity to minister to you. I don't know if you remember from one of our first studies in Sunday school is being transparent, being vulnerable. We must do that with one another, right? There's no Lone Ranger Christians just on the wild, wild west handling it on their own. We need one another. We should be dependent on Christ and one another. And on serving those who share their struggles with you, when someone bears their soul to us, we are called to take them seriously. One thing that helps is to refrain from offering trite solutions that make it sound like only a complete fool would have that problem. That, that's a pitfall that we don't want to fall into. So struggling with depression, should we just tell them to read their Bible more and spend more time in the sun? Then you'll feel okay. What may seem simple to you could be a lifelong battle for someone else and a constant struggle. When someone opens up to you about a struggle, it's as if they just offered you a, a jewel and it may be rough and disfigured, but you now get to, the stewardship to listen and help polish that jewel so that it becomes a reflection of God's sanctifying work in one another's lives. So, those are just a few thoughts on the context of relationships that we need to build. Uh, relationships that are honest and relationships that welcome struggling people. So before we go to number four, is there any questions at this point? Yes, ma'am. I used to, very long time ago. <laughs> All right, number four. How to encourage struggling people. 
the Christians around us are fighting the flesh, and they're fighting hollow and deceptive philosophies around them. We're exhorted to encourage them, to instruct them. So how do we do that? The answer is that it does depend on the person. But Scripture has given us a lot of wisdom in thinking through this issue. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we read, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. This is the basis for the part of our church covenant that I read you earlier in the introduction. When we encourage the struggle of a brother or sister in Christ, it is useful to run those three categories in your mind. Are they idle or unruly, as the New American Standard puts it? Are they faint-hearted in need of motivation? Are they simply weak and in need of someone to help shoulder their burden? And how can we do this with patience? Whatever category they're in, I want to suggest three things we should do. First, speak scripture to them. That doesn't simply mean just throwing a verse and walking away. Usually to speak truth to someone in a way that they can hear, we first need to show them that we love them. And we need to get to know who they are and what it is they're facing. Then, once we do, we want to convey truth of God's word to them. Maybe by reminding them of a pattern of salvation history, perhaps of God always proving himself faithful, or simply studying a passage of scripture with them, but speak scripture. Second, help them meditate on the good news of the gospel. Speak to them about different aspects of what Christ has done and get specific. For the person wrestling with guilt and shame, Christ has shouldered our blame so we can enjoy reconciliation with the Father. For someone experiencing loneliness, Christ has bought us, brought us adoption into the Father's family. For the person fighting constant temptation and indwelling sin, Christ has made us new and filled us with his Holy Spirit. We know these things as Christians, but we so often need help connecting these truths to the situations that we face every single day. We need each other to encourage one another. And thirdly, identify evidences of God's grace in their lives. Recognize whatever fruit the Holy Spirit is growing in them and tell them about it. If someone is tempted to doubt if they're really a Christian, this can help them in their assurance that God is truly transforming them if you see fruit. That is what Paul did in so many of his letters to the church. When he wrote to the Corinthians, even though he had a lot of rebuke coming, he opened his letter by saying what? I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. What we'll do now is walk through three case studies, and this is where I'm going to ask you questions. Examples of what this might look like for each of these three categories Paul lays out in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. With each, I'll, I'll give some background on it's a hypothetical person that, I'm, that we're making up here, and we'll discuss a couple of questions together. So letter A, warn those who are idle. Admonish the idol, okay? So let's say, to begin with, you're talking with a lady named Sue 
who will not remove herself from the path of temptation. She has found out that she's very tempted to be in love with the things of this world. And watching a particular show on TV seems to always leave her discontent with the life that God has given her. But she really, really likes the show and has fun talking about it with friends at work the next morning after the show airs. You've talked to her about how this show may be playing more destructive role in her life, rather, you know, more than she can realize. And while she confesses that the show does regularly lead her to be sinfully discontent, she hasn't stopped watching it. She is idle and seems apathetic about her soul. So two questions. The first one is, where is the gap in Sue's understanding of the gospel? Anybody have any answers? Yes, she said repentance, which is the correct answer. So what do we talk to her about repentance and the gospel of repentance and the truth of repentance, which should be suggestions to her? It's, it's about the issue of what it truly means to repent, right? Um, Paul says in, in Romans 6, 2, says we die to sin, how can we live in it any longer, right? True conviction, true repentance of the heart. Does she understand what repentance should look like for a Christian? Questions we can ask her. Does she understand um, what it means to take Jesus's words seriously? Right, in Mark 5, 30, says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? Not physically, but we're talking about spiritual seriousness of sin. Get rid of that part of your life. Um, so second question is, what would you say to Sue? <clears throat> what are the two types of sorrow? Yes, godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. So we can talk to her about that and ask her questions about that. So she may regret watching the show, worldly sorrow, but she's not truly repentant, so there's not truly godly sorrow, right? So godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So those are some... Questions and scenarios. Second scenario is encourage the faint-hearted letter B. So for this example, we'll have a guy named Jack. He's in his late 20s and still trying to figure out what to do with his life. He works at a dead-end job, doesn't find himself particularly useful at church, and would like to get married, sort of, but isn't anywhere close. And he's been struggling for several years with what God's purposes are for his life. He feels like he's close to giving up, though he doesn't even know what giving up would actually look like. It sounds, it sounds dramatic. So he rarely serves others, but he said he would like to. He just doesn't think he has anything to contribute. When he looks at all the elders, he feels like they're all super Christians, and he just is a nobody, and nobody really cares or knows him. So for Jack, being faint-hearted 
What's the same question? We'll ask it. Where is the gap in Jack's understanding of the gospel? That's right. We were called to stir up love and good works. So she said Christ created us for love and good works, and he needs to walk in them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right, and how do you find out what your gifts are? By trying, by serving. And then you know, like, nope, not this ministry. And then you just, God does give you inclinations of where your strengths are. So serve, right? Jack's idea here is, to, is that church is to serve him, you know, self-serving. Yeah. yeah, so it was said that Jack's idea is the church is there for him and to serve him. And that's the wrong mentality and that's the wrong heart coming to church. We're here to serve one another and sacrifice for one another. Absolutely, so her question was um, on contentment of where he is in life, basically, and coming to church. We are called to be content in all things, right? Paul says, I have learned to be content with whatever area of life that the Lord has me, whatever situation that I'm in. We went over that three weeks ago on discontentment. So absolutely. That's right. So it was said that to find things to be thankful for in any area of your life, in any situation in time that you are in your life, um, even in the darkest of times, we have much to be grateful for. If we know the truth of scripture, if we know the gospel and who we are in Christ, not, nobody can take that away from us, right? The flesh they can kill, but not the spirit. That's the Lord's. So in what does Paul say is to live as Christ, to die as gain. You'd be with him in glory. That's a huge gain. Not struggling with sin anymore in the struggles of your heart and mind. Um, do you remember Pilgrim's Progress and in the beginning of Christian's journey, what did he fall into? Yeah, the slough of despond, right? It's a boggy mire, like swamp, where a sinner encounters all of the doubts, fears, and temptations of their sins. And do you remember who comes along to help Christian when he's stuck in the slough of despond? Gave you the answer. Help. He, a man named Help came by, which is exactly what we're talking about this morning, is helping one another by way of encouragement. People get stuck in that slough of despond, just bogged down by the natural things of the world. And do you remember Christian also asked, how come anybody hasn't removed this? And help goes, many people have tried, but sins naturally build up here and they, they're naturally coming to this place with doubt 
and struggling and fears and temptations of their own sin, and it all just gathers. It's a natural part of this side of glory. Uh, we are new in Christ, but we still struggle with the flesh. So to Jack, we've already kind of covered it. What would you say to encourage him? Um, help him understand his responsibility rooted in the opportunities God has given him, which was we talked about. His value doesn't come from the approval of others. We've, we've kind of discussed this a little bit. Share with him the glorious hope that God has given all of those who are his children. So first, or first Peter 1, 3, it says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So share about how all Christians in the church are gifted to care for one another. And, we, and I think we covered most of that, so good job. So lastly is help the weak, letter C. Let's move to the last one. Who is weak? In a sense, all of us. But there are some in our midst who are weak in ways that make them especially spiritually vulnerable. This might come through certain circumstances in life that make it difficult each day to keep trusting God. For our example, I'm going to talk about a man named Max. Has been, he's been diagnosed with clinical depression. He's un, un, unable to do the amount of good that he once could. He struggles mightily with his relationship with God. And now that many of the emotions of faith he once counted on without ever realizing it are few and far between. Through work with his pastor, he has come to recognize some of the spiritual roots of his problem, but Max is discouraged and downhearted in so many ways. And Max is weak. So where is the gospel gap in Max's understanding of the gospel? Amen. Trusting in God was said. Say it again. God can heal. Right? And it's not always physical, but spiritually. Yeah, lacks hope. So we point him to where the hope is in Scripture. And we're, we're called to trust in the Lord in spite of how we feel. and What our emotions tell us. So he needs to trust God more than himself, right? That's the essence of the gospel. It's not our strength. It's not anything that we have done. It's God alone. What about constant reminder of Christians in his life that come around him to let him know that they love him? Yeah. That's right. So for the recording, it was people who have diagnosed with clinical depression have been hurt by a lot by the people around them, and they need to know that they're loved by the, the people that are most important in their lives. Um, and this is some of the most important people in our lives is the church, the body. Um, it can be a stronger bond than the bond of our 
blood biological family because we have, we're one in Christ and we have that to stand on in our foundation. And so if we're hurt by those people, um, that can affect us greatly. And if those are the people that are supposed to come alongside us and supposed to love us and they don't, um, that can speak a lot towards the gospel or lack, lack thereof as well. So action items is there are people who are constantly weak in the faith. They are. And we as believers and brothers and sisters should love them, encourage them, point them to Christ, get to know them so you can minister to them. Right? Call them throughout the week, text them, encouraging words, all of those things. So second question, we've gone over it already, I think. What would you say to encourage Max? And hope is the main answer. So what about, what about the things that he's going through? How his sufferings are pr producing fruit? What if they produce perseverance? Hebrews 5, 8 said Jesus learned obedience to the things he suffered. Amen. So Hebrews 5, 5, 8, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. What if uh, his suffering is producing character and hope in itself? And therefore, maybe down the line in Max's life, he is now helping other people who struggle with this because he's gone through it and he knows and he can sympathize with them. So th in this category, especially those who are weak, we can't be content to simply dispense truth at people and feel like our job is done. Sometimes we need to be quiet and listen and simply be present while they suffer. Other times we need to pray for them, to meet physical needs and, and provide fellowship for them. We shouldn't only speak the truth. It is necessary, but that shouldn't be all that we do. But do these things, and by doing them, it creates opportunity to speak the truth, right? Encouragement and help. Be, be like the character in Pilgrim's Progress. Come alongside and help people who are weak. What a great encouragement. And then in that, be patient with everyone because the Lord's been patient with you. And other people have been patient with you as well and model that. So finally... As we wrap up, when Paul says to be patient with everyone, whether it's someone who is physically weak, someone who is frustratingly obstinate, someone who thinks they're doing great and doesn't need your encouragement, our posture is patience. <laughs> and that is easier said than done, but encourage one another to do so. Your job is never to condemn, never to shame someone by how slow their growth is going. And true patience comes from knowing how patient our Heavenly Father has been with us. Patient delights to serve your brothers and sisters because they are reflections of God's character and because gratitude for God's patience runs deep in your soul. If we are grateful and keep reminding ourselves of how patient and slow to anger God is with us, it should encourage us to do that to others. We love because he first loved us. Our love comes from his and ought to reflect his love. 
So because of that, we labor to present each other mature in Christ. So encourage. Encourage one another frequently and often. Um, it already happened to me this morning, which was a great blessing um, by one of our Sunday school instructors. Just those little words of encouragement go a really long way. You don't know what's going on in one another's lives all the time. We should have some idea, but you don't know what they've gone through this morning or even yesterday. Um, if something tragic happened or if they're just struggling in marriage, if they're struggling with their relationships with their parents, um, you ask, though, and you encourage. Speak truth in love and pray for one another. Amen. Let's close. Lord, we, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for the ministry of encouragement, the ministry of depending on you, first and foremost, and seeking your strength, but also depending on one another, the body. Lord, I pray that we are vulnerable enough to share with one another what we're struggling with. Lord, help us to realize that we are not on our own. Whatever we're going through, whatever sin we're struggling with, whatever, whatever life has presented to us, that we are not the first nor the last that are going to deal with it. And we can encourage one another in the truth, in the, the truth of your word, praying for one another, pointing people back to Christ every single day. Lord, give us the strength to do so. Give us the, the desire to pour into the lives of others, and therefore people can also pour into our hearts and minds. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your scripture and that we can stand on the faith that you have given each and every one of us, and that's our common ground is the love of Christ and his sacrifice in our life. Help us to never forget it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you all.